turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. I feel like I've been lazy, went on vacation, came back for three days, then because of the holiday, had another couple of days off. We missed you, and we're glad that you're here. If you have any questions about your Bible, questions about our faith, questions about something going on in your life, 210 210- Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's three four zero ninety five eighty five. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. One button call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our primary number, it's 340-9585. Ladies, tonight we are resuming our Sweet Summer Devotion series. Uh, Elaine Hollybaugh will be sharing. Um, Elaine is a young woman who's been in our church now for, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, she actually just got engaged. So uh, we know the Lord is doing a whole bunch in her life. She's one of the, the, the young women who came into our church and fell in love with the, uh, um, uh, I'm a grandfather to this young man. He's, uh, now out of college, has his master's degree, uh, but I've known him his whole life. So um, Elaine had to go through a lot of approval processes before, and she she's just done great. You'll be blessed. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Um, uh, Pastor Juan Ortiz will be teaching the men. Pastor Ken is on vacation himself now. So we have the men and the women at 7 o'clock, high school and junior high school age kids uh, at 7 as well. Uh, and we have, of course, child care for the younger ones. So good night for a family night here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Ladies, as always, you'll be able to watch uh, the Sweet Summer Devotion series live stream at calvarysa.com. Got lots of good questions. Would really rather have your phone calls. So let me get to uh, my first question today. It's, it is anonymous. I know who it is, but the question uh, it will be addressed anonymously. Pastor on, I have a question. I have an uncle and... Um, He and his wife just started attending an Assembly of God church. I believe that it is Pentecostal. I really don't know much about that. Anyway, my uncle recently started having the gift of speaking in tongues. His wife does not. Yesterday, my uncle wanted to pray for my cousin's health. She's having some inner ear issues. So he and my cousin and her daughter and in tongues, and my cousin and her daughter are not born again. Now, I believe this was wrong to do, and I looked up this morning in 1 Corinthians 14. How can my cousins understand and agree with his prayers if he prayed in a foreign language? It ended a little awkward for me. Uh, I didn't know he was going to do that. I was uncomfortable. 
Am I wrong in thinking he should not have prayed in tongues? If I am wrong, I will repent, but I am just a little bit confused. Um, Anonymous, you're not wrong, not at all. Sadly, uh, this is um, what's being taught in the assemblies of God. Uh, They believe that when you're praying in tongues, that is a spirit-led prayer. It shows that you're praying uh, fervently, you know, and the, the, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much, we're told in our Bibles. Uh, here's the problem. They're wrong. Um, but but here's what I find in a lot of these Pentecostal movements, and you're right, the AOG is is uh, sort of crazy uh, charismatic, um, um, and, and they just don't really care that much uh, what the Bible says. They have a practice. They do it. It becomes commonplace. And uh, it's simply not something uh, that ought to be done in the way that you describe. Now, uh, I have the gift of tongues, so I'm not anti-tongues here. I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, it would have been appropriate for him to pray for them in private using his prayer language. In fact, appropriate and I think powerful. Uh, but uh, as it is, because they're unbelievers, they're just going to think it's weird. They're going to think that he's sort of out of his mind. So here's what I would do if I were you. I would explain to your cousin that he meant well. Assume that he did, and I'm sure he did. Um, explain that though he meant well, uh, that he isn't mature enough in his faith to understand that what he did with unbelievers is wrong. Now, you're going to do so lovingly, but I think this is important to teach him. Uh, I'd also tell your cousin that um, what you want to pray for is for them to get saved, not for their inner healing. There is a God who sometimes heals. But because they don't know him personally, they don't have access to that power. So I think what we've got to do is not put the cart before the horse. Metaphorically, I think what we've got to do is we've got to realize somebody's having a problem with uh, an illness of some sort. We need to ask him, do you know Jesus? I'd love to pray for you. What I'm going to pray for is that you come to know the one who can heal. We have to have a balanced approach to healing. I think in this radio audience, most of you know that by now. But um, this is just one of those things where um, you can always tell a Christian who isn't in a Bible teaching church. And unfortunately, the Assemblies of God, there's nothing heretical about the Assemblies of God. Um, they're real believers, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but their emphasis is on experience. I call it goosebump Christianity rather than on substance. And remember, it's the substance that we need when we're in pain. So I hope that helps you, Anonymous. Thank you for the question. And um, once you talk to him, keep praying for your cousin. Who knows, maybe his eyes will open. Here is a question from Jason. Pastor Ron, how do you explain that some people who don't believe in God are people of high moral standing? Uh, Jason, if I understand your question correctly, it shouldn't surprise any of us that there are some people who have, who have really solid moral foundations who aren't believers, just as there are some people who are believers who are still struggling with those moral foundations. We're all human Uh, And there are some people that are good. There are some people that are rule followers. Uh, I married a rule follower. Paula was a really, really, really good person. And she always tried to do the the right things. And she still does. The problem is, doing good things isn't enough to get to heaven. So the fact that there are some people who are good, they've got good family lives, they've got uh, they pay their bills, they're good citizens, they're good friends, they're good co-workers. Um, you know, that's sort of, we are made in the image of God, and and there's some of that in all of us. Uh, I, I've never claimed, and I don't know if you're asking this in response to something I said, but I've never claimed that everybody who isn't saved is amoral or immoral, which would be worse. Uh, that's just not true. Some of the nicest people we have ever met will not make it to heaven because they didn't ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. So the truth is, Jason, there's really, really nice people, good people, 
often comparing them to us or comparing them to other people that we know. But we always have to remember that being good or being nice isn't the standard to get to heaven. The standard to get to heaven is being perfect. And nobody except Jesus was. And that's why we have to believe. Jason and I once saw a t-shirt. I had a copy of, uh, of it one time. And I don't know what's happened to it. It's been a lot of years. Uh, but the t-shirt said, the righteousness God requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. That, I think, is a great explanation. Yep, there's some good people, uh, people that are just decent and rule followers. And unfortunately, there are some Christians who are not. Let's go to line one in San Antonio for an anonymous question. You are on the air. Thanks for calling. I'd like to just know uh, my reassurance of salvation. Okay. And what what are what is your nervousness about it? What what are you dealing with? I'm a Christian. Sometimes I get a little scared that I'm not really saved, and I don't believe in my, I believe in my salvation. But sometimes I get a little scared that, I'm, that I don't really have salvation. I'm just worried. I'm just concerned about that. Yeah, anonymous. You're in a you're in a large, large group of, group of people. Um, take a note of this. I'm, I'm going to have you when, when we're done. Go go. Just sort of meditate on this verse. It's Ephesians chapter one, verse fourteen. Um, and it is to me, the definitive statement of security in all of the Scripture. Uh, it says that the Holy Spirit, upon believing the Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, that's a huge, huge promise, Anonymous. Uh, I want you to think about this for a moment. If I said to you, and I, I'm, I'm on the radio, I could do this, I could, oh, I'm sure you're saved. But you see, I can't guarantee it because I don't know you. I can't guarantee it because um, my guarantee isn't perfect. I like to think I'm close to Jesus and uh, I've got his word in my heart, but I have no power to perform the guarantee. But the guarantee in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 is a guarantee that comes from God himself. And the proof of this, it's an amazing concept. The proof of this is that God came to live within us, relationally speaking, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that this is simply a down payment. And you see that word uh, as a deposit. It was a down payment, like you buy a house and you put some money down to make sure that everybody knows you're sincere about the deal. Well, God wants you to know that he's sincere about you, that he loves you, that he's going to hold you. And if you understand that, then it's just a matter of faith. And when you have those thoughts that come creeping into your mind, like, I'm not sure I messed up again, or or somebody said something, maybe doubt my salvation, or never forget there's an enemy who's always going to be whispering in your ear, trying to make you feel insecure. When you deal with those kind of thoughts, those kind of doubts, that's when you have to remember what the Bible says. I know how I feel, but my feelings aren't reliable. Here's what I know is sure. Your word. And your word promises me that I'm secure. Let me also say, Anonymous, that that uh, God wants you to feel secure. Imagine, I don't know whether you're married or not, but imagine uh, looking into your wife's eyes and she just has stolen your heart and you say, I love you so much. And imagine how you'd feel if she said, well, I don't think you love me. Well, that's what we do to Jesus. So what we do is we hold on to the promises in the Word. That has to be way more secure than how we feel. And then we walk with Jesus. I'll say one other thing before we we go on, Anonymous. The fact that you're worried about it 
really truly indicates to whom you belong. And you have to know that. The epistle of 1 John is a great one to judge your salvation. But more than that, if God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's why the value of being in the Word. Now, I'm not accusing you, so don't don't misunderstand this. But generally speaking, when people come to me as their pastor with doubts about their salvation, my first response to them is, so it doesn't sound like you're in the Word very much. Tell me about your Bible time. And almost always they will say, well, you know, I don't have time to read it very much. Well, that's why we feel insecure. The word is that that security. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word never will, Jesus said. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I've got you in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. My Father who's greater than I has you in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. I always call that anonymous, the double pluck security protection plan because the King James uses the word pluck. Nobody can pluck you from my hand. Jesus has you. So don't pay attention to how you feel. Again, I understand how the enemy works and I understand um, our human insecurities. But this is simply a matter of faith. Jesus, I choose to believe what your word says regardless of how I feel. And if you will do that, I think you're going to notice a huge change. And when you do, you're going to be absolutely over the moon with joy. It feels good to know you're loved by God. He proved it. He died for you. Nothing else that you ever have to consider. Jesus, I may feel insecure, but I know I'm secure in your hand. Thank you very, very much. And I'm sure you're still on the line. Does that help? Sir? Yes? Sir? Yes? I appreciate the information you just gave me. Oh, okay. Just, I'll be uh, praying for you. Before I close out, just, uh, just, just pray for me, okay? I, I would love to do that. Jesus... Here's what I'm asking you to do. A special, special moment, Lord, that you would wrap your arms around this caller and you would look deep into his soul and you'd convince him that he belongs to you. By the power of your spirit, Lord, let him feel secure, let him feel strong in his faith and let him rejoice over the promise that Christ in us, the hope of glory is his. Bless him, Lord, and fill him afresh. Amen. Thank you for the call, and I'll be praying for you. If you would keep me posted from time to time, that would be great. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Valerie. She says, when Joshua was commanded to destroy all the living in Jericho and other cities in Canaan, Did God give those people a chance to repent? Valerie, the people that were in Canaan, um, God had given um, uh, the promised land to Israel. But God was patient in some cases for more than 400 years. And they all knew who the real God was. They chose to worship gods that allowed them to sin. Gods that didn't require anything of them. And still, they rejected him. And because they did, 400 years in the case of the Amalekites or the Amorites wasn't enough. I think here's where we have to understand that God didn't pour out his judgment upon them. And make no mistake, the campaign in Canaan, it was seven years long, the campaign in Canaan was God's judgment. And while it started with Jericho, because it was seven years long, all of the peoples in the neighboring lands, they could see, they would hear the stories of what Joshua and Israel was doing. And they had a chance to repent. And we know some did. Rahab is a good example. So um, everybody had a chance to repent. But this was judgment. The fullness of their sin had finally come 
a bear. Thanks, Valerie. Good question. Uh, let's go to Celeste calling from New Brumfels online to Celeste. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, sir. I had called you a couple months back, and I was the one who asked about um, my pastor has said for a wedding that we shouldn't be dancing, and, you know, we're past that now, which we're still going to dance with artists. But my question is now, he's saying that we shouldn't get married because we're not going to count the question that he's offering. Okay, thank you. Okay, wait, I'm sorry. Don't go yet, Celeste. I couldn't get the okay. last part of your question. It faded out. You shouldn't get married until what? We shouldn't get married because we're not going into his marital counseling sessions that he requires. Yeah, why why aren't you going to do that? Uh, one, we honestly feel that they just want to get more in our business and not much more for, you know, showing us the right way. We think they actually just want to get in our business. Okay. I know you're going to listen off the air, so please pay close attention, Celeste. Thank you for calling, and I'll be praying for you and your intended as well. Uh, a couple of things. As a pastor, it breaks my heart when people um, don't want to take the time, make the investment, or take the effort uh, to, to go to pre-marriage counseling. Um, I, I do a lot of marriage counseling. Um, I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling as well, but a lot of times when these young couples come in and they're going through really difficult things in the first or the second year of their marriage and they've moved here and, and I'll just say, well, didn't you deal with these kind of issues in pre-marriage counseling? No, we didn't go to pre-marriage counseling. No. God uses pre-marriage counseling in a powerful way. I always tell people when they're getting ready, the, the real important issues are going to come up during pre-marriage counseling. The Holy Spirit has his hand on those things. And with all of my heart, I believe it's a God-ordained function. Again, it's not a requirement, but God is going to put his finger on the issues in your heart and your future husband's heart, and you're going to have a chance to sit down with a pastor and, and, and learn how to navigate through those difficult times, uh, especially in our culture where there's so many blended marriages, you know, second or third marriages, um, there's, there needs to be a lot of counseling. I actually do uh, a counseling session with the children of blended marriages because we need to talk openly and honestly about how difficult those things are going to be. So um, um, I would really prayerfully ask you to reconsider that's how important premarriage counseling is. The other thing that concerns me is when people say, oh, they just want to get in our business. Um, you know, as a pastor, it's my job to be in people's business, not in a judgy way, but but they want help. They need help. And my job is to protect them. And sometimes when uh, people are worried about somebody else getting in their business, it's because they've got a lot to hide. And premarriage counseling is important. Um as a general rule, Celeste, I also would not perform a marriage ceremony um, where somebody didn't want to go through marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling. Um, that, that would raise all kinds of red flags uh, in my mind, and I, I would just think this is a, a marriage that's headed for trouble, and they don't care enough about keeping that marriage out of trouble to, to prepare in advance. Now, there are some times when people want to get married very quickly. What we do in a case like that is we just simply tell them, okay, look, as a condition of doing this, then we start pre-marriage counseling after you get married, but we do it and we do it faithfully. I make them promise. I make them make a commitment. And there are some that don't follow through on those commitments, but they're usually sorry that they did. So it's really important. Uh, another issue, Celeste, and I think this is also uh, uh, something that really perfect about um, um, maybe you'd feel more comfortable with another pastor. Maybe there's another staff pastor at your church um, uh, that you don't know so well and, and you'd feel a little bit more comfortable with him. Uh, if that's the case, I just would advise you uh, as, as urgently as I could not to forsake pre-marriage counseling. That's how important it is. You have to have an idea 
what a godly marriage looks like. You have to have an understanding of your roles within the marriage, both the husband and the wife. Remember, this is one of those things where as Christians we're supposed to submit to the will of God. And I can promise you, going through premarriage counseling, before you make a commitment before God and before the church and before family and members and friends, that you're going to stay married forever. You've got to ensure that investment. You've got to make sure that you're going to keep your word. And the only way to do that is to be pre-prepared. I know that makes no sense to a lot of you, but that's a word me and Paula have made up. You know, we always want to be pre-prepared. And before you say, I do, before you say, I promise never to leave you, I promise to be with you until Jesus comes for us, you need to be ready to make that commitment. Celeste, thank you for calling. I'll be praying. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585. Here's a question that came in anonymously. If someone has had gender reassignment surgery, can they still be saved? You know, Anonymous, the best thing about our Jesus is that anyone, no matter their condition, can still be saved. Anyone. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of people who are undergoing gender reassignment surgeries in the world that we live in. And they're going to be more miserable afterwards than they were before. Um, and, And yes, they can be saved. Yes, they can be saved. I actually had somebody ask me one time, about this. Well, what if somebody has had gender reassignment surgery, they get saved, do they have to go back the way they were? Uh, you know, the Bible talks about remaining in the condition you are when Jesus met you. So, uh, yeah, they can be saved. We need to keep praying for people. We need to keep moving, uh, praying for a move of God's Spirit. Uh, I think God is going to do something really special in our city. So, um, you keep praying for people like this, but yes, they can for sure uh, be saved. Let's go to back to the phones and talk with Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, I'm Cindy. curious. Oh, I'm, I'm curious about Lot's wife. Now, I know the reason she was turned into a pillar of salt was because she looked back, and God doesn't want us to look back on our old life. But what I'm curious about is why salt? Why, why didn't he turn her into a pillar of petrified tree trunk or granite or, <laughs> or rock or some really bad cactus or something? So I'm just curious, why salt? So I'll get off the air and listen to you. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it very much. She has the best questions. Here, Cindy, we, there, there are things that we're not given explanations for. Now, my own opinion, and that's all it is, is that the salt was a result of the fire and brimstone, the the judgment that came. I I think that's just whatever. I don't think it was um, um, a specific judgment. I just think that because she looked back. And the idea there is after having been warned, don't look back, flee, we got to get away to this place of safety. She looked back, and the Hebrew there is with longing. Her heart was still in Sodom and Gomorrah. And since her heart was in Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the same kind of question that we deal with with judgment coming from the Lord uh, for eternity. Uh, God honors our heart. If we don't want to be with God, if we'd rather be somewhere else uh, as we live this life, he will honor that choice that we made in eternity. And Lot's wife um, simply um, demonstrated that her heart was really in Sodom and Gomorrah. She was sort of being taken away from the place of judgment uh, against her will, and God never violates our free will. 
You know, Cindy, the, the thing that I think about in this that is the most discouraging Lot. Now, we know from, from Peter that Lot was a righteous man, vexed in his spirit by all the sin around him. But his witness was so compromised that even his own wife was lost. His witness so compromised that his wife couldn't follow him as he followed Jesus. So it's just one of those terrible stories in the Bible that we have to deal with. But salt, uh, again, my opinion, is just the result of the, the peculiar type of judgment that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go to San Marcos now and talk with Roland online, too. Roland, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon to you. Thank you, sir. My question is, uh, what's the difference between praying in tongues and praying in the Spirit? Good question. And uh, I'm going to listen to you on the radio, okay? Okay, Roland. Thank you very, very much. Good question. Um, I, I think if you're praying in tongues at the unction of the Spirit, and, and I want to explain that, that doesn't mean that the Spirit just overtakes you and you, um, um, you, know, you have no control, because we always have control. Self-control, remember, is the fruit of the Spirit. But if you're praying in tongues by the unction of the Holy Spirit, then you are praying in the Spirit, And praying in the Spirit means praying in God's will. So the biggest difference is praying in the Spirit at all times. Paul says we're going to have grateful heart. And with thanksgiving, we can make our request known to God. When we're willing, as Jesus did, Roland, to say, Thy will, not my will, be done. Lord, here's my request, but Thy will, because you know better. That's when we're praying in the Spirit. When we are praying in tongues, if it's not counterfeit or phony uh, then because it's the Holy Spirit producing the prayer and the gift of tongues then we know we're praying in the Spirit the difference is when we're praying in tongues we do not know what we're praying for unless of course you, you have been given the gift of interpretation so a couple of things Roland and this is one of the problems with, with overly charismatic churches with churches with no balance is uh, they interpret the Bible when it says pray in the Spirit at all times. They interpret that as meaning to pray in tongues. That's not what it says at all. Praying in the Spirit simply means we're praying in the will of God, we're praying for the will of God, and we're praying from a position with God based on His righteousness, knowing that there's no sin that's getting between my prayer and God's ability to answer that prayer. So praying in the Spirit is praying in the will of God, praying for the will of God, and praying with Jesus. If you're praying in tongues, again by the unction of the power of the Holy Spirit, then you know automatically you're praying in the Spirit. But they're not necessarily the same thing, and they certainly don't mean the same thing when we read it or misread it the way that a lot of charismatics do. So praying in the Spirit does not mean praying in tongues. They're two separate and distinct things. Tongues is just exercising the gift of tongues. And Roland, if you've got the gift, you know it's a great gift. It's a gift that we ought to use. Um, um, I don't pray in the tongues daily. I pray in tongues, you know, as I feel led by the Spirit. Uh, but it is a wonderful gift that helps us get closer to the Lord. Good question. Thank you, Roland. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Hi, Jimmy. Oh, you last week. Um, I, I got, I've been in this group. It's called um, Peel the Onion Group at the yeah. church that we attend. And I'm thinking of getting out of it because I wanted to find more information about it. And uh, when we said, is there any prayer, I, I, I felt in my spirit that something was wrong there. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's a bad prayer, but I'm saying it's something in my heart was that it was something wrong there. And um, so I started asking questions. They don't like me asking questions. But I started saying, well, where's Jesus in this? You know, I'm going to tell you that Jesus saved my life. Jesus is everything to me. 
He's, and, and, and before I leave, I'm going to tell him about because they want me to share my whole my whole life story and everything. And I said, no, the Holy Spirit doesn't want me to share everything with you <laughs> because he already healed me from those sins and healed me from <laughs> salvation. And he just wants me to tell you what he's done for me in my life yeah. and how he can save your lives. Because where's Jesus Christ? Said, well, we, we don't talk about him too much. And I said, well, why not? I said, I said, if this is, if, if this, he's, he's about everything in our lives, you know? So he says, well, it's not about that. It's about peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with the world. And I said, well, how can you have peace without the, the salvation of Jesus Christ? Because there's no other peace than that. And they're like, Jimmy, well. Is he, Jimmy, is this a church group? It, well, I thought I, I, I was missing. I, I told the guy, I, I was misled. I, he says, well, I failed to tell you. And I said, no, no, I was misled. You know, it's, it's involved with the church. But they're like, and I said, well, you need to tell me more about the retreat, too. And I said, well, he says, I can't tell you about it. I said, well, God, he says, well, God keeps secrets from us. I said, yeah, it's it, to a point he does. But when Jesus came, he told us everything was going to happen. And I said, and another thing is, you're not God. And you're a human being. <laughs> it's a good group to avoid, Jimmy, for sure. It is a good well, group I knew, to avoid. I knew something, and I told my wife about it because I was so discouraged. And she says, "You know what God wants you to do, Jaime? He wants Jesus Christ wants you. God wants you to tell them what Jesus has done for you in your life. Yep. And I'm not going to back down from that. Yep. It's very important that these guys know how Jesus saved my life." And Jimmy, when, when, after you do that, Jimmy, give me a call back and, and let us know how it went, okay? All right. I just have to pour my heart out. Yep. Just, you're an expert in what God has done in your life, and and uh, obviously there's a bunch of unsaved people in that group, so uh, it gives you a chance to, to have a little mini pulpit for a while. Uh, take advantage of it and give them Jesus. Thanks, Jimmy. I'll be praying for you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. David says, uh, Pastor, on my pastor told the church um, he will start performing same sex marriages. What should I do, David? I wish you could see my face right now. I would say, look closely, read my lips, leave that church. Period. Your church is apostate. Your pastor is apostate. And there's no value, zero value in you remaining in a church that's going to turn its back completely, turn its back on the Word of God. So uh, we're, we're going to see this, by the way, David, more and more and more. Uh, pastors get uncomfortable. Um, you know, they get really emotional. They can't hold on to what they know the Bible says. And they are convinced by the world around us that this is the way to love people. This is the way to be accepting. And, and in reality, David, it's nothing more than a way to help people go to hell. And you see, one of our responsibilities is to help people find Jesus. And if they choose to reject Jesus Christ, they need to do it. Literally over his dead body, but figuratively over our dead bodies. We need to make it uncomfortable for people who want to go to hell. It's just that simple. And um, we're seeing this over and over and over. Uh, you can look at YouTube and you can look at, at uh, uh, other websites that, that I'm not a social media guy, so I don't see them. But there's all kinds of testimonies that are available of pastors who say, you know, after much study and, and celebrities as well, after much study and really reconsidering the word of God, um, I've come to the conclusion that God wants us to love our LGBTQ brethren and brothers and sisters. And the way to love them is to embrace them, to accept them, to bring them into the church, when in reality all we're doing is allowing them to sin and feel like it's okay. And Jesus, if you remember, David said something about people who cause one of his little ones to stumble. He said it would be better for us not to have been born and he talked about millstones and dark seas, not a good combination. 
So pray for your pastor. Um, tell your pastor that this is why you have to leave the church. But David, if you stay there, you're going to end up being seduced by all of the so-called good feelings by the goosebumps. It's time to leave that church. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Our next question comes from Randy. He says, my question is about hell. There are a lot of people who claim God won't let anyone go to hell. And while I would love for everyone to go to heaven, I still believe hell is real. Could I have your thoughts? Um, Randy, you know, it, 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 it gives people goosebumps when they say things like, well, my God is a big God, and if my God is big enough to take everybody to heaven, shouldn't that make everybody happy? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. If there is no hell, if there's no eternal punishment for sin, then we don't have a God at all. You can talk about your big God, or you can talk about your loving God, but the problem is he's not God. Because our God is just, and our God is holy. And sin has to be punished. Why else would Father ask his son to go to the cross where the full wrath of Almighty God was poured out on him as he took upon him the punishment for our sins? That's Isaiah 53. The price that bought us peace was placed upon him. He took the wrath of God. Yesterday at Calvary Chapel was Communion Sunday. And when we're partaking of the of the cracker, Randy, my thought is, is Lord, you, you did this to prove to me once and for all how much you love me. You love me so much. The Bible says he endured the agony of the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. Randy, you and I, we're that joy. If there is no punishment for sin, if there's no hell, then we don't have a holy, just God, and if we don't have a holy, just God, of course, there's no God and we're all lost in all of our sins. So no, it wouldn't be good to get to heaven and find out that everybody made it and Jesus was lying to us the whole time. And I say Jesus was lying because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. That's how important this issue is. And it's one of those everybody get goosebump feeling thing. It's not a good thing. Let me also say this, by way of a specific example, Randy. Would you be okay going to heaven and finding out Adolf Hitler was there? Or Jeffrey Dahmer? Or a serial child molester? There's a big news story going on now about a, a billionaire in New York, and he's got, obviously, homes all over the world. Uh, but but he has just been indicted on many, many counts of sex trafficking and sex slavery with kids even. Do you want an unrepentant like that man like that in hell or in heaven, I mean? God's either holy or he's not, and if he's holy, Bible says that there will be Nothing impure enter heaven in the book of Revelation. And the only way for us to be pure is to be purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. But Randy, it's a really important question and this whole concept of universalism in these last days, you know, the Bible says people will gather around themselves teachers who will, you know, scratch their itching ears, tell people what they want to hear. And universalism, this everybody finally gets to heaven, is one of those itching ear things. It wouldn't be a good thing at all. Edward asks, why do some preachers like Joel Osteen have such large churches if they're false teachers? Well, Edward, the reason they have large churches is because they're false teachers. Whenever you tell people what they want to hear, it's easy to, to draw a crowd. What you have to do is make people feel good about themselves. If you if you produce a movie that's really good and makes people feel good, then you're going to get saved. Paula always laughs 
at herself because before she got saved, her favorite movie was Pretty Woman. And, you know, it's sort of a modern-day, immoral version of Cinderella. But the idea there is, is it made her feel good. Then she got saved. She goes, wait a minute, she was a hooker. That can't be my favorite movie anymore. But it made people feel good. It was a story of overcoming. Well, if we paint a Jesus who doesn't require anything from us, if we paint a picture of a Jesus who only wants us to feel good, only wants us to be happy. Well, it's going to be easy to gather around us a lot of people just like that. That's how they get big churches. I tell my pastors all the time, you know, we have such a focus in our church culture on church growth. Big churches equal success. That's not the truth. What we've got to remember is that Jesus builds his church. We do our job. He brings people to pastors he can trust. And I want to be one of those trustworthy pastors. So we tell the truth. We teach the word verse by verse. A guy like Joel Osteen, who is a false teacher. Now, I'm personally convinced he's a Christian. But he can't be too comfortable in his own security. Comfortable in his wealth, and he's comfortable in the crowds around him that adore him. But he can't be comfortable in standing before God and saying, I did what you told me to do. Tell my pastors it's easy to have a big church in terms of numbers of people. Not so easy to tell the truth in love. And that's our job as pastors. So, Edward, I hope that makes sense to you. Randall, we're in five-minute territory here. Randall says, uh, Pastor, do you think it's okay for ministers to marry people in the church without requiring or participating in a government sanction ceremony? Um, Randall, personally, I do not think so. Now, um, my view might be evolving on this over the years. I've got lots of friends who, because of the threat of of, uh, law enforcement, because they won't perform same-sex marriages, I have a lot of friends, pastors, who have completely given, uh, pulled away from the, 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 the sharing in the secular marriage uh, licensing thing. And they'll tell people in their church, you go get a license, go stand before a judge or a, or a clerk and, and let them pronounce you as a wife, then come and we'll do a, a church ceremony where Jesus is the guest of honor. And I've got a couple of, of, of those people who have agreed with some of the people in their bodies, to to marry them before God, before the church, but not require them to go get a license. I I can't go that far now. don't think I'll ever be able to go that far. I think we have to obey the laws and we're willing to take a stand. But, But I know why they do it. I can understand the rationalization for it. One more thing, Randall, and this is for anybody out there, and you didn't say whether or not you're a, a, a pastor or not, but, uh, I think this is an issue that we pastors have to get ready for. I think we've got to be men and women who will say, and inside the church, who will say, we're going to take a stand for Jesus in this issue of same-sex marriage. I think some of us, men who are pastors called by God, I think some of us need to be ready and willing to pay the price, even if it means we're going to jail. Now, we're not at that place here yet, but it's sure getting close in Canada, and Canada is pretty close to us. So I don't think it's okay. I think when you tell somebody that they needn't be married in the eyes of the government, licenses are required, names are changed, I think what you're telling them to do is okay to reinterpret the Bible and pick and choose what we want to obey. So, Randall... Uh, I, I don't think it's okay, um, and yet I say that with people that I love, care about, and respect who disagree with me on the issue now because of what the state has done relative to marriage 
um, they've rendered it almost meaningless. Um, got two minutes. Let me find a two-minute question. Uh, Monica says, Pastor Ron, if we're saved by grace and not works, why is repentance required? Isn't repenting a work? Uh, Monica, repentance is required because if you meet Jesus, if you really meet Jesus, he changes you. We are saved by grace through faith, the faith not even of ourselves, it's the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 says. We can't do enough work or good enough work to warrant being saved. But we have to come to God on his terms. This is really important, Monica. We have to come to him on his terms. We can't come to him. We can't meet this Jesus who 28 years ago radically transformed my life in an instant. We can't come to him and continue in sin. We simply can't do it. But repentance isn't a work. Repentance, true repentance, is a result of having met the true and living God of the universe. His name, of course, is Jesus. So repentance required because when you look into those eyes of holiness, when he touches your heart, he gives you his perfection. And that has to change you. Good question, Monica. Thanks for tuning in today, ladies. Remember, our Sweet Summer Devotion series continues tonight at 7 o'clock. Elaine Hollybaugh will be uh, sharing her heart. You will be blessed. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.